Well, in June of 2014, just before my 50th birthday, I found myself in an operating room at Camp Hill's Grandview Surgery Center where my life was forever transformed by uh, an ear, nose, and throat surgeon by the name of Don, Dr. John Fornadley. Now, for as long as I can remember, I was never able to breathe through my nose. And, and this always uh, was a concern to me uh, because, you know, since I'm in such a high-profile position and since I have such a large net worth, I figured, you know, one day I might get kidnapped. That's a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that. You guys are terrible. Uh, that I might get kidnapped. I might get gagged. And uh, when you, you cut off the airflow through my mouth, I was not going to be able to breathe through my nose and that I would actually suffocate because of this massive nasal polyps that clogged my sinus cavity. But on that warm, sunny day, uh, with my friend, uh, anesthesiologist and Living Water Elder Board Chairman Jay Rosignol putting me to sleep, making sure that I feel no pain, and bringing me back to life at the end of the surgery, all of that was, uh, my life was transformed by Dr. Fornadley. And over the course of two hours, he skillfully removed every polyp, and in the process, he transformed my life. And, and 10 days after the surgery, once uh, all the dressings had dissolved, and it's kind of a gross process there, but once all of that stuff was taken care of and everything that was healed, I was a new man. I could breathe through my nose. I could actually smell. Uh, I was able to, the, I couldn't believe food actually had a taste to it. Uh, my voice actually changed, it got a little bit deeper. And uh, my life had been completely altered, so much so that, that during the post-op visit with Dr. Fernadley, I said, Dr. Fernadley, there's something that I, I've been wanting to tell you. And he says, well, what is that, Mike? And I said, next to Jesus, you have made the largest change in my life. And over the last several years, last seven years, I have become a Dr. Fornadley apologist, an evangelist. Every time someone comes to me and tells me that they've got something going on with their, their, their throat or their ears or their nose, I'm like, There's a, you gotta go see Dr. Fornadley. I probably have sent you know, three or four dozen people to his office because he made such a radical change in my life. And the fact of the matter is this. When a change happens in your life, a radical change happens into your life, uh, you want to let other people know about it. You don't want to keep that to yourself. When, when all of a sudden there has been hope infused into your life or freedom infused into your life or some kind of life change infused into your life, you want to let other people experience it. And that's actually what's happening here in the fourth chapter of, John, uh, of Romans as, as we continue to explore it here today. We're going to see how the Apostle Paul wants to be able to let people know about the life change that he has actually experienced. So this morning we're going to spend some time again in verses 1 through 7 of Romans chapter 1. I know we talked about this two weeks ago, but we're going to expand on it a little bit this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles uh, in, the pew, or in the tables around the room. Uh, you can check it out on your phone if you want, or you can open the Bible that you brought with you. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And if you were able to stand in honor of God's word, I would humbly ask 
that you would do that, please. <clears throat> Romans 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, two weeks ago, when we looked at these verses, I spent some time sharing with you the foundation of what the, the Apostle Paul has called the gospel of God, the good news. And I told you that the gospel was created by God, that it was revealed or, or prophesied in the Old Testament, and that it was centered on Jesus and Jesus alone. Now this week, I want to use these same verses to show you how we actually experience that gospel in real time in our lives. And if anybody knew what it was like to experience the gospel, it was Paul. Because prior to his encounter with a risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul was an evil, angry, prideful, self-righteous man who had wrapped himself in this religious veneer. He was so blinded by his distorted understanding of God and God's purposes and so driven by a desire to force other people to believe that which he believed he wasn't wanting to try to convince people to do it. He wanted to force people to do it. He was so intent on earning his own justification before God and so convinced that his view of salvation was the right view of salvation that he completely missed the Messiah, completely missed the Savior, the very one that he and his Jewish brothers and sisters had been awaiting for centuries. But what's amazing about all of this, all of that, anger and pride, all of that confusion, all of that self-righteousness, it didn't stop God. Because in the midst of Paul's sin, in the midst of his pride, his hatred, his self-righteousness, Jesus seeks him out, changes his heart, saves his soul. Now I want you to listen to how Paul describes his former life. He says this, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. By his own admission, this guy confesses that he was a violent persecutor who was laser-focused on destroying a group of people simply because they did not believe that which he believed. And he would fit well into this cancel culture that we are currently living in. This evil culture that uses shame 
and ridicule and rejection against those who, who dare articulate a position different than that of our popular culture. That was Paul, one of the first members of the cancel culture. But then something happened to him. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, this is what we read by his own pen. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son Jesus to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Rather than destroying Paul, rather than giving Paul what he deserved, which was death for opposing God's plan and persecuting his people, God instead gives him grace. He gives him unmerited favor. He, he gives him unwarranted kindness and compassion. And Paul acknowledges that this is what he receives here in this first chapter of Romans. In verse 5, he says this, Through whom Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, in order to understand that verse... There is a single word in there that you and I need to understand what it is actually saying. And it's a very small word. It's the word we. It's, it's the uh, first person plural pronoun in the English language. It's the word that we use when we're talking about a group of people and we don't want to name everybody. We, we, we don't want to say, you know, uh, I'm here in this worship service with, with Brent and Bennett and, and Susie and Gary. You know, uh, we're all here in this worship service. And so in this case, when we see the word we, on the surface, it seems like Paul is referring to not only himself, but he's also referring to the Roman Christians that he's writing this letter to. But it's not actually the case. The we that is used in this verse is a special grammatical we. It's called an epistolary we. So what in the world is that? An epistolary we is the use of the first person plural pronoun by an author, author when he's really just re referring to himself. So in other words, it would be like me saying, yeah, we were in the airplane when I was the only person that was ultimately in the airplane. Now, how do we know that this is the case? Well, we know it from the context of Scripture, because beginning in verse 1 and all the way through verse 5, he's continually talking about himself. When he says, we have received grace and apostleship. Now, what is it? Why do I spend time doing this little grammatical exercise here? Well, there's another word in here that's crazy important. And this is a, this is a little Pastor Mike theological uh, sidetrack that we're going to take here, but I think it's important for us to understand because this is something that has gotten distorted in Christian churches all around the world. And it's the word apostleship. You see, apostleship is a gift from God that is limited to a very small group of Christians. And in the New Testament, the apostles were, were a, a subset of all of Jesus' disciples. Those who were following Jesus were called disciples. But within that group of disciples, there's a small group of 12 men that are called the apostles. 
And these were the guys that were specifically called by Jesus to be fishers of men. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostles have now been whittled down from 12 to 11 because Judas has taken his own life. And what happens is the apostles decide that we need to replace Judas. And so Peter, who is the leader of this gang, he goes and he speaks to the guys in Acts chapter 1 and he articulates the qualifications of who gets to become an apostle. And in Acts 1, verse 21 to 26, he says this, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. So he's saying we need to find someone who's been with us from the entire ministry of Jesus. And then they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among, with the, or numbered with the 11 apostles. So here, Peter articulates two qualifications for someone to be able to hold the title of apostle. Number one is this, that they had to be around when Jesus was doing his ministry. They needed to be witnesses of the resurrection. Number two, they had to be specifically appointed or called by Jesus. Now, given these qualifications and the entirety of history, there are 14 individuals who meet those qualifications. The original 12 apostles. Matthias, who gets chosen in Acts chapter 1, and Paul, who encounters the risen Christ and is called by him in Acts chapter 9. And I tell you this because there will be times when you run into people who have claimed the name of apostle here in the 21st century. And I'm here to tell you that is a false thing that they are claiming. And I go down that road just so that we make sure that we have this clarification. Now, let me take you back to the verse. Through whom, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Now, Paul is saying what he says here because he wants the Christians living in Rome to know the incredible transformative power of the gospel. Jesus' grace, the thing that is at the very center of the gospel, pardons Paul's great sins of self-righteousness and hatred and kidnapping and false imprisonment and murder. And if that's all that grace did, if all that the gospel did and all that grace did was pardon these sins, that would be incredible in and of itself. But grace does something so much more. Jesus' grace was so powerful, so forgiving, so restorative that Paul, the murderer of Christ's followers, becomes Paul, the apostle of Christ. The greatest spokesman, the greatest apologist, the greatest evangelist, the greatest theologian the world has ever known. 
And just like Dr. John for Natalie radically changed my sinuses and in the process radically changed my life, Jesus radically changed Paul's heart and mind and in the process changed the entire trajectory of not only his temporal, but ultimately his eternal life. And Paul was never the same because of this great work that Jesus did through the gospel. And it's that radical transformation that he wants these Christians living in Rome and that he wants you and I to be able to uh, experience in our own lives. And through this first seven verses, actually verses five to seven, I believe what we find is four principles of experiencing the gospel, and they're this. We experience the gospel when we receive it in faith and it manifests itself in obedience. So so we actively experience the gospel when we receive it in faith, and because that change has happened to our lives, it drives obedience. Number two, when we surrender our will to Jesus, we experience the gospel when when we surrender our will to Jesus' will. Number three, we experience the gospel when we are enveloped by the love of God And finally, we experience the gospel when we set ourselves apart for God's purposes. So let's look at each one of those, spend just a couple minutes on each one. First one, we experience the gospel when we receive it in faith that manifests itself in obedience. Look again at verse 5. Through whom Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, folks, we live in a world that believes that we must contribute to our own salvation. And as such, in this world that we live in, in order to be accepted by it, we not only need to believe what the world teaches, but we also need to act on what that word, the world teaches, to obey that which the world teaches. And I, and I want to explain this by, by taking uh, an issue in our culture. And, and I'm using this issue in our culture not to say whether it's good or bad, not to support it, not to denigrate it, but just to use it as an example because it's an example that all of us are very familiar with. And what I want to talk about and illustrate with is the topic of man-made global warming. Now, our secular culture expects everyone to believe that the global warming that is being experienced in our world right now is man-made. And that it's not only man-made, but that it is a clear and present danger to society and that we ultimately have the power to stop it. I mean, some people believe so strongly in this, Elon Musk believes so strongly in this, that that he wants to colonize Mars because he thinks that we're going to make the world uninhabitable. This is how, how what people believe about this. Now, but it doesn't end there. Not only do we need to believe correctly about man-made global warming, but we're told that we need to act correctly on that. So what does society tell us that we need to do? It tells us that we need to recycle, 
that we need to reduce our carbon footprint, that we need to change the LED lights, that we need to cut our lawns with battery-powered mowers, that we need to install solar panels on our roofs, that we need to make sure that our electrical provider has renewable uh, sources for energy, that we need to trade in our internal combustion engine cars for electric cars. So in our culture, what we're told is that we not only have to have correct belief, but we also have to add correct actions in this to save ourselves. But that's not the way that Christianity works. In Christianity, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves or for that matter others. We are too weak, too sinful to contribute to our own salvation. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than Ephesians chapter two. In the beginning of Ephesians chapter two, we're told that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. What, what, what that is telling us is it's telling us that there is no way that we can save ourselves. If, if I had a heart attack here and fell on the ground and, and, and was not breathing, my heart was not beating, there's no way that I'm going to be able to perform chest compressions on myself and mouth to mouth. I am going to die. That's what it looks like to be dead in our sins and trespasses. You cannot save yourself. Someone has to come from the outside and save us. And after the Apostle Paul tells us about being dead in our sins and trespasses, he says this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one might boast. Put simply, there is nothing that you and I can do to earn God's favor. Our sin is too great, and our debt to God is far too overwhelming. And we are incapable of living the sinless life that we are called to live. And we are equally incapable of enduring God's righteous wrath that comes as a result of our inability to live this sinless life. And so we have nowhere to go, no way to save ourselves but to run into the open arms of Jesus, trusting that his sinless life and trusting uh, that his sacrificial death paid the penalty for our sins because salvation is a gift of God. It's not a work of human beings. And it has everything to do with God's grace and nothing to do with our effort. But here's the rub. Paul comes along and he says this, this obedience of faith. And what he's getting across here is this, that genuine faith always results in our obedience. Obedience doesn't bring true salvation, but true salvation always brings obedience. And in churches around the world, and sadly, even here in Living Water, in our midst are at times false converts. Men and women who have said that they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but there is nothing in their life that demonstrates that fact. With their mouths, they say they believe in Jesus, but through their actions or lack of actions, they demonstrate that they don't really believe. And Jesus' half-brother James talks about this in James 2 when he says this, 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And also, and so also, faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. You see, belief or faith that doesn't only manifest itself in action and obedience is a false faith. And the way that we truly experience the gospel of, of Jesus Christ is when our faith actually radically impacts our behavior. Suddenly, we're not attempting to, to please God by obeying him, rather... Because God has been pleased with us through Jesus, we obey him out of love. And that's just the start of truly experiencing the gospel. We also experience the gospel when we surrender our will to Jesus. Look again at five and six. Through whom Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So the second element of fully experiencing the gospel is found in the phrase, called to belong to Jesus. Now, not only has God called Paul to himself, and not only is he calling ordinary people like the Christians living in Rome to himself, but more importantly, he's calling those of us who have gathered here today to himself. Now, this would have been mind-blowing to the Gentile Christians that made up this church in Rome. As Pastor Ben taught us a couple weeks ago, the church in Rome was made up of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And they were trying to figure out how to get along together, and they were struggling at times. And the Gentiles were always feeling like they were second-class citizens because the Jews had been called by God. And so what happens here is there's this chasm between the people. But Paul comes along and he's telling these Gentile Christians that they too have been called by God. They have as much value as the Jews who have come to faith in Jesus and were worshiping alongside of them. Now, think about what this means to you and me. Think about what it means to be called to belong to Jesus. The holy God of the universe who knows everything about me and knows everything about you. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the things that you and I work so incredibly hard on covering up. He knows our, our fears and our failures, the stuff that's unmentionable, the, the, the horrific things that we wouldn't want anybody to know about. The one who knows us better than ourselves that one has called us to belong to him. In Jesus' economy, there's not one group of Christians any more important or any more valued or any more called than any other group of Christians. So regardless of the color of your skin, the accent of our voice, the, the country of our ancestors, our socioeconomic background, our education, our ability or lack thereof, what we think about ourselves or what others think about us, if we are a Christian, the God of the universe has called us to belong 
to him. And specifically, we're called to belong to Jesus. And what does that mean? It means that we're his. That nothing can change that. That he actually owns us. And listen to what Jesus says about this in John chapter 6. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because we belong to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has secured our salvation. Because he has been, can be trusted. We don't have to live in fear. Because of the gospel, we're secure in Jesus' arms in the present for all eternity, regardless of how we might fail him. And regardless of how others might fail us. And tied closely to belonging to Christ is the third element of experiencing the gospel And that's being enveloped in God's love. Look at verse 7 again. To those, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about those words for a moment. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. Loved by God. Is there anything more beautiful, anything more hopeful, anything more life-giving than knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that the holy God of the universe loves us? And what makes it even more amazing is if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that there's nothing especially lovely about us. Listen to Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Can we be really honest with ourselves right now? What is there truly lovely about humanity? Think about the things that come on the news. Wars, rockets, people exploiting one another, kids being abused, violence in the streets. Is there anything inherently lovely about humanity? And then think about ourselves. Is there anything inherently lovely about us? Folks, we, we, we are a hot mess. We, we are unkind to one another. We are selfish and prideful. We ostracize and look down upon or at best ignore those who think differently than we think. We exploit one another. We intentionally hurt others, not just with our words, 
but with our actions. And when left to our own devices, we can do some of the most heinous things to one another. And you take all of that and then all the ugly stuff that you can't actually even mention in church. And why in the world would God love us collectively? And why in the world would God love us individually? I mean, what is really lovable about any one of us? I look at myself. You ever have those, like, someone makes you mad, you know, and you have those conversations in your head about what you're going to ultimately say to them or what you're going to, you don't do those things typically, but you have those conversations, right? I mean, that, that just, the fact that we even have those conversations in our head shows us how incredibly twisted we are. That, that, that the only thing that's restraining us from, from behaving like that is because we know something bad might happen to us. Someone might punch us in the face or, or we might lose our job. But if we were left to our own devices, it would be Lord of the Flies everywhere. But then, God loves us. Why? Why should he love us? We find the answer in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy basically is a collection of Moses' sermons prior to the Jews moving into the promised land. Moses isn't going to be allowed to go into the promised land because he's been disobedient to God. So he gets to be close to the promised land and he's going to die. And so he, he takes, he's got, Deuteronomy is basically the last lessons that he has for the folks. And, and he speaks to the people very candidly. And this is what he tells them about God's love for them. He says this in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord. Now how can he possibly say that? The Israelites are about as unholy as you possibly can get. They're disobeying all the time. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Say what? Out of all the people who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hands of the king of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God love the ancient Israelites? We're told right there. He loves them because he loves them, period. They brought nothing to the table. To be completely frank, they're a perpetual thorn in the sight of God. There's nothing lovable about them, yet God loves them nonetheless. The same is true for us. We bring nothing to the table, nothing. There's not something wonderful about us that causes God to love us. The reason that God loves us is simply because he loves us. Period. That's amazing. How much hope is in that? Last point. We experience the gospel when we set ourselves apart for God's purposes. 
Again, Romans 1, 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In there, we see that we are called to be saints. Now, the term saints in the New Testament is far different than the term saints here in 21st century world. It doesn't mean being perfect or holy. You don't have to be Mother Teresa to be considered by God to be a saint. But that's how Mother Teresa was considered by the Catholic Church, right? That she is a saint, and there's all these other saints. Why? These people have been good and exemplary and stuff like that. That's not the way that it worked in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it means to be set apart or separated for God's work. It means that you and I have been called to be God's hands and feet in a very broken world. It means that we have been called to be different than our popular culture. It means that we are to embrace and proclaim and defend those things that are important to God. And it means that in the process, we will be rejected by others, perhaps ridiculed for what we believe, maybe even persecuted. And regardless of where we find ourselves, regardless of the neighborhood where we live or the work that we do, or the social circles where we roam, or the friendships that we have, we are called to live lives that are set apart, that are different than the rest of our culture. We're not called to remove ourselves from culture. Instead, we're, we're called to engage that culture, to swim against the culture, and, and to do it in, in a humble way, in a loving way, but also in a bold way. We're, we are to be different in our workplace. We should be different than, than those in our workplace who are not fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We should be different. It doesn't mean we look down on people. It doesn't mean we treat them poorly. It, doesn't, it, it means that, 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 that we love better than anybody else loves. We offer grace better than anybody else offers grace. We work harder than anybody else works. It means that we are different because we have been set apart by the God of the universe. Now, the problem with being set apart is it can be very scary. Because when you begin to stand out, when you begin to go against the flow, when you begin to push back on things that our culture doesn't like, there is something that happens in our world. It's called pain and suffering. There's a, there's a lack of peace in our world. And our world is desperately looking for peace. And we find that in verse 7. Paul says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul is doing here is absolutely remarkable. He is combining two extremely popular cultural greetings. He takes a, a Greek greeting, kyre, which means grace, is translated grace, and he takes a Jewish word, shalom, a Jewish greeting, which means peace, and he ties them together. And why is he doing that? Because this church has Gentile Christians, Greek Christians, and Jewish Christians who are not necessarily getting along together very well, and he basically, he honors them both with this greeting in an effort to hopefully 
pull people together, but he does something else. Through pairing peace to grace, he shows us the pathway to peace. In our culture, peace is elusive. It seems so, so hard to find. We live in a world where, where political rivals mercilessly disparage one another. How people can't possibly get along together across the political divide is a horrific testimony to the American political system. It's horrible. Where you, where you see people saying, well, you're, you're a Republican, you can't be a Christian, or you're a Democrat, you can't be a Christian. I'm like, what in the world are you possibly talking about? But that's the culture we live in right now. People can't even talk. I mean, you ask people, you know, what do you, you know, do you ever talk about politics around your dinner? No way. It's like lighting a nuclear bomb in your house. No one does that. We live in a world where, where one ethnic group is pitted against another ethnic group. It's insane. We live in a world where, where nations rage against nation. We live in a world where, where there, there's calls to defund police, yet at the same time, people are blowing one another away in our neighborhoods like crazy. You can't go on to Penn Live. You can't go, a week won't go by on Penn Live without someone blowing each other away in Harrisburg or York. It's there every single week. We live in a world where the response to a public health emergency, which should bring everybody together, divides people. It divides families and schools and workplaces and churches. What in the world is going on? Division and despair, they're everywhere. It seems so complicated. When is there ever going to be peace? When? When is it going to happen? Now many will tell you, Mike, I'll tell you when peace will come. Peace will come when people get justice. I get that. Justice is giving people their due. That's what it is. It's giving people what they deserve. And we need to give people justice. That needs to happen in our world. Every single person. People shouldn't get treated differently because they're rich or poor, whether they're black or white or, or brown or, or yellow or whatever. They shouldn't get treated differently because some are rich and some are, some are poor. That should never happen. Justice is, is important. And, and, and we hear these cries, no justice, no peace. And while that makes for a great slogan during demonstrations, you know what? I don't think it has been working. It just has not been working. Perhaps there's a better way. Perhaps, rather than demanding justice, maybe we offer grace. Perhaps, rather than shouting at our enemies, maybe we should start talking to them 
perhaps we move from condemning the actions of others to confessing our own sinful thoughts and words and deeds. Perhaps we respond to hatred with love and to injury with forgiveness. After all, isn't that what God did for us? If God would have given us justice, if God would give us what we deserve, if God would have done that, where would we be? Every one of us, where would we be? In hell, burning, suffering eternally. If we got justice from God, that's where we would be. Instead, what does God give us? He gives us the very thing that we keep from others. He gives us grace. Undeserved merit. Unconditional favor. On the cross of Calvary, God's son, Jesus, cries out what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they've done. Who's he talking to? Well, He's he's probably telling God, please forgive these guys that have nailed me to the cross. Forgive the Romans. Forgive the centurions. He's probably saying, Lord, please forgive the Jewish religious leaders who have unrighteously condemned me to the cross. Please forgive them. But I believe that he is doing something so much greater. I believe that he is looking out at all of eternity past, all of eternity in the future, and he is looking at your sin and my sin, the sin that put him on the stinking cross, and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in reality, you want to know something? A lot of times we know exactly what we're doing. You see, The good news of the gospel is that sinners like you and I, we don't receive justice. Instead, we receive grace. And it's that grace from God that ultimately gives us peace with God. And I believe that's where peace will be found in our world. When men and women who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, start acting like men and women who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And rather than offering up condemnation and division, we offer up grace. I had an experience this week, Pastor Ben and I had an experience this week. There was a, I don't know if it's a conflict, whatever you want to call it, at church. It was, a, it was an issue that he and I had to deal with, and uh, with, a, with another person, and a person who, who we love, but it was something that had to be dealt with. And uh, what I witnessed is something that, so sadly, I, I very rarely witness. I witnessed some of the most beautiful humility I have ever seen. We got, we got talking about the, with this individual, a theological, thing, a a, a different way of looking at something. 
And this person very calmly articulated the reason they believed what they believed, backed it up with scripture. Pastor Ben and I saw it a different way. Pastor Ben does this incredible job of explaining his position. It's something that would completely divide people. But in that meeting, there was grace and humility and unity. And we walked out of that meeting. Everybody walked out of that meeting happy. Normally we walk out of meetings like that like a nuclear bomb went off. I'm picking up body pieces out of my office for the next three weeks. It's because people treated one another with grace. I mean, that's what the gospel is about. The gospel is about the God of the universe offering us grace. We deserve condemnation, and he gives us grace. Folks, we got to do that with others. We got to do that in our families, in our workplaces, with our kids and our husbands and our moms and our dads and our teachers, our coworkers. We gotta talk to one another, listen to one another. And maybe you're a lot farther along than the other person is in their spiritual journey. Well then, sometimes we take it on the chin. Jesus tells us what? That sometimes it's better to be wronged. Nothing changes in this world unless it starts with this right here. Nothing changes. There is nothing that motivates anybody who is not a Christian towards grace. Nothing. Nothing will never happen. And the way that more people come to faith in Christ is when Christians actually start behaving like Christians. And that's how the world gets changed. And the Apostle Paul, he experienced that full out. He was radically changed by Jesus. And he wants others to be radically changed too. Might you and I live like that? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. And thank you for these amazing people that, uh, Lord, I get the opportunity to lose my mind sometimes with. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would, you would help me and you would help them to be kinder people, to be gentler people. Lord, not to roll over Help us to have the courage to stand up for what's right, Heavenly Father. But Lord, help us to do it in, in, a, in a way that is, is grace-filled. And Lord, when others come at us hard, and, and, and Lord, let us, not, let us not be afraid. Let us know that, that our salvation is secured by you, that you are our advocate, that we're your children, that you care about us, that you can, you can change the heart of Pharaoh. You surely can change the heart of whoever might be a problem in our lives. God, would you do that, please? Help us be amazed by the way that you have loved us. And Lord, be glorified in it all. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.